All right. Well, well, go ahead. I was going to say, you, you want to just roll it? or Yeah, go for it. it. All right. If I mess up, we'll just stop and do it again. Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Necro. Brought to you by Public Safety and Education and the Trigger Pressers Union. And now, your hosts... Welcome to Meet the Pressers with Clint Macro and Matt Mallory. Meet the Pressers is a show that's all about self-defense, firearms, gear, gadgets, politics, and political activism. And today we have a very special guest. I just spent some time recently down in Florida with him, uh, Paul Puella. This episode is brought to you by Taser. Simple to use, safe to own, effective when you need it. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Presser is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, McLean Corporation, ASP, Custom Poker Chip Company, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by these fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Paul has a very long career in law enforcement and firearms instruction, and I, we're very happy to have you on the show, sir. Why don't you give us a little background on, <clears throat> on your current situation, where you work, and on top of that, your background on how you became to be such an influential instructor in the industry. Well, thank you for those kind words. Um, Presently, I am the Director of Law Enforcement Training for the National Association of Chiefs of Police, which is headquartered in Titusville at the American Police Hall of Fame. Uh, I also have my own training company, Assault Counter Tactics. Uh, my background is quite lengthy, but I'll try to sum it up for you real quick. Uh, in 1980, I was stationed at Fort Bragg. Uh, home of the 82nd and Special Forces Command, and home of Delta. And uh, I, right out the gate, I had the opportunity to start training with members of Delta who were plank owners of that. And through that, uh, I went to just about every gun school in the country and did a reverse osmosis of doing law enforcement training while I was in the military went to three different police academies, um, was involved in a couple of shootings, both in law enforcement and uh, as a civilian. But the, what has gained my infamy, if you call it that, is as a civilian, I have nine documented cases of having to go to guns to stop threats. So that's kind of, as a civilian, I can relate to people in self-defense applications better than most. It's pretty profound. Some would probably say that you're looking for trouble, but then again, trouble's everywhere. So people think that, well, it's not going to happen to me. It's never happened. I mean, you're a perfect case that you, you weren't looking for trouble. It just, the stuff finds you. So looking at the, uh, the situations you had been in is in looking back and like, we've had George Zimmerman on and you know, that that's actually one of the things we've talked and collaborated about a lot because you know, George as well. Um, 
And just thinking of that, like the last question I asked George in the interview was, if there was anything you would have done differently, what would it have been? And his was, I wouldn't have left the house. If he knew what would have transpired that night in the jury of public opinion, he wouldn't have left the house at all that night. Would you have done anything differently? Um, looking back now in hindsight. Well, there's, we could always uh, play, you know, a secondhand quarterback after the yeah. fact. True. But the, the bottom line for me is, should you always walk away from a bad situation if it's available to do so? Absolutely correct. Uh, there's no doubt uh, in the case of George Zimmerman, um, there's no doubt if I'm sure in talking to him that if he could have avoided that whole situation, he certainly would have. But at the moment in time that uh, he was getting his head smashed into mm -hmm. the concrete, there was no point of no return on that. Hey, guys, this is Rob with McDojo Life, and I'm here with Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macro. Meet the Pressers. I got about 45 years in the martial arts. Would you say that your uh, unarmed or martial arts training has influenced your firearms training? I think that's a great question. And the answer is yes, uh, because if we get down to the root word of martial, which means warlike, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the hand-to-hand -hand without the firearms and vice versa. Hmm. So you're, the training that you offer has been predominantly in the context of training law enforcement officers. That's correct, right? Well, I teach law enforcement, uh, but the majority of my assault counter tactics is strictly for uh, civilians. Uh, okay. and, I, and I do so because of all the uh, unfortunate incidents that I've had. I just hope and pray that nobody else has to go through that. So as a type of ministry, it's what I do for people for a very low uh, denomination fee for it. Cause if I don't charge something, my fiance just jumps all over <laughs> me and I just, you know, uh, I can't, she'll lock the doors on the house and won't let me in and kind of stuff like that. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you can't help your fellow man if you live in a cardboard box or it's much exactly. harder to do. So, you know, Matt and I both, we make a living with training and, and, putting classes on and helping to empower our, our fellow citizens. And sure. yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. So sure. would you say then uh, your law enforcement background would, with that training law enforcement and civilians, do you approach those two groups differently? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I take kind of umbrage when a law enforcement officer teaches a group of civilians with a badge visible because then what he is or she is saying that they have a get out of free jail card because their rules of engagement are totally different than a civilian's is and it's a different uh, use of force policy. Mm -hmm. So therefore they're almost negating the training that they're doing to civilians. Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a very good point, very good point. Yeah, I did a class with with Dave Spaulding, and he talked about how different trainers will, you know, because of their background, it kind of influence how they teach. Whereas, and I'm sure you would agree, law enforcement, you don't arrest someone that's on the other side of the parking lot. You're very in close. So a lot of law enforcement instructors are put quite a bit of uh, stock on, you know, gun retention, 
shooting from uh, retention positions, that kind of thing. Whereas military guys are generally more about precision and like calling in the cav and use your pistol, get to your rifle kind of thing. And the civilian instructors like me, it's, it's do everything you can to not even get the gun out of the holster and try and run away before even, you know, even there's a, a sign of needing to use it. I had this discussion with uh, Tom Givens several years ago and um, interesting enough, he, he put it in one of his latest books. If you think about the military instructors, they're usually doing team tactics. Everything with them is not an individual uh, element at all. It's in team tactics. And if you think about even that kind of goes toward uh, uh, law enforcement as well, uh, because with law enforcement is contact and cover. So there's somebody watching somebody's back generally as a rule for law enforcement, it's one on four. Uh, so if you got one bad guy, hopefully you have four responding police officers in a military team, it's uh, between four, six, eight to 12. And those people have uh, night vision. They usually have uh, primary secondary weapons, flashbangs, grenades, and knives. So with the civilian at best, at best, he has or she has one gun, one magazine, maybe a backup weapon as a knife generally is what it usually is. So the, the whole schematic of uh, training as far as the totality of the circumstances is totally different. And your thought process is if you can get out of town, get out of town. I think that it, that works uh, tremendously well for the civilian. Uh, it absolutely does. There's certain elements that you absolutely have to follow the letter of the law to be justified in what you're doing, not just to survive the deadly force encounter, but as you intellectual men know, you have to survive the legal battles as well. No, that's a very good point. <clears throat> One of the things that I'll say in my class is to, to let people kind of sink in their head because you'll hear, have people say, well, good Samaritan, you know, if, you know, if there's gunshots, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to save people. I want to help. And I always say that think of three people in your life that would be drastic. Their life would drastically change if you were no longer around, like you're gone like that financially or emotionally, they're devastated because you're not there for them. You owe it to them not to be in that fight. So as a civilian, you should be like, and I'll do a dramatization where I'll stand on the floor and I'll say, gunshots are this way. What do cops do? They run towards it. Gunshots are that way. What should civilians do? This way, right? And the only caveat to that would be is if your family is, is in a mall and you know they're in a, re they're in a restaurant or they're in a store towards the gun, gunfire, then you may run towards that gunfire to try to help them get out of the mall. But other than that, self-preservation so you're around to help your uh, family is, is the key for civilians. Yeah, and there's certainly, there might be a moral and an ethical uh, damage to that. You know, I, I, I would think if I ran the other direction and knew that good law-abiding citizens were getting killed down the hall, uh, that would be hard to live with. But you're right, you know, I have to protect not only myself, but my son's daddy. And that's, that's pretty important, too. So, yeah, those are some of the questions I think a lot of civilians don't think about when they put the gun on their belt. And you have to do that kind of soul searching stuff. And, and as Matt says, you know, the, the body can't go where the mind hasn't been. You need to consider those things so that maybe you're less likely to improv in the moment.
Well, I think uh, that is the main fault of the majority of instructors teaching their curriculum because they're in the mindset of a soldier or a law enforcement officer. And in training, you could see it on video. When you got civilians walking toward the target and shooting, if our alibi is that we got involved in the shooting because we were fearful of our life and you're walking toward the threat, how fearful uh, were you? So in, in a lot of the training that we do, um, we are shooting or not shooting backwards going into the rear direction. Now, there are times specifically where you may have to go forward, but that is the, the rarest case uh, that could possibly be. Part of being a family first responder is having the ability to respond. It's difficult to do if you're sick. Wash your hands. Wash your hands often. Avoid unnecessary contact with your face. Advise your family to do the same thing. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Meet the Pressers. When I uh, got the job at the American Police Hall of Fame, I was just looking to, uh, I was just looking for work and uh, also to do stuff that I really enjoyed after my retirement from the military. So uh, the owner and CEO of the American Police Hall of Fame asked me if I would consider turning the uh, Hall of Fame into a, a police academy because one of their four, one of their um, institutions that they have uh, under their 501c is the American Police Academy. And as such, because I've been in this industry for so long, I was able to bring in really top-notch uh, people, guest instructors like Gary O'Neill, Billy Wall, Dale Comstock, as you guys know, Danny McKnight, uh, E.J. Owens, uh, and the list just goes on and on. And I've been able to bring those people out to the Hall of Fame uh, for both law enforcement and civilians. So it's worked out quite well. You've had Matt Mallory there very recently, haven't you? Yes, I did. And, you know, and I, I want to say about Matt's uh, instructional abilities, uh, Matt is on his way to becoming one of the top instructors in the country. He's got everything that he needs in his skill sets um, to launch information to people that absolutely need it. Um, and there's not a whole lot of people that can do that on a regular basis for any length of time. It takes special uh, uh, skill sets, knowledge, training, experience. He's got all that. Um, and he has the right presence for it. I really appreciate that, Paul. I mean, it means a lot to me that you, uh, you think that highly of me. And uh, I definitely enjoyed my time down there with you. I'm looking forward to coming back down again uh, in June. Let's have him come back down to teach again in June. Yeah, I will be in your class for sure. Looking I'll be down there in June too. You will. Yeah, Clint's, will. Co Clint's coming down to the DSF, uh, level one instructor. Uh, ex that is excellent. I think what I'll probably do when you guys are around, I'll, specifically for you guys, I'll have a knife counter knife uh, class for you guys too. I like oh. that. That'd be that, great. That actually yeah. sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm always interested in getting more training, especially 
uh, well, any training, but the, the knife stuff, as nice I stuff. said, it's, it's, it's very new to me. I carried a knife forever. I always have, you know, always cutting boxes and envelopes and stuff. And I always thought, well, gee, if, the, if there was no gun available, well, I'll use this as a defensive tool. But when I did take some of that training, I think some of the things I may have done with that knife probably weren't necessarily the best thing for me to do with it. Uh, so getting a little bit of, of training, getting a little bit of uh, tactics, a little bit of technique under my belt would be a, a great thing. Well, I, I will tell you, in 35 years of being in this industry, um, one of the keys to my survivability is to keep training and stay current. I started out as a police officer using revolvers, and we went to semi-automatics. And, and now the, the weapon systems, they're getting so technologically advanced with lasers on their guns, flashlights on their guns, and now... Uh, we're getting red dots on pistols. So it's always evolving. Mm -hmm. If you just stay in the, your depth of knowledge of what you've learned over the years and not gotten current training, that's a big mistake. Yeah, we taught reloads much differently when we were using muzzle loaders. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the technology changes. You got to keep up with that. Well, from, you know, I can kind of concur to that, not to the muzzle loader part, because I'm not that old. But uh, but speed strips for sure. Speed strips to uh, to uh, the speed loaders for sure. Hello, everyone. This is Gabby Franco, and this is Meet the Pressers with Matt Mallory and Clint Macra. Meet the Pressers. Equipment changing, that, that just comes with, with technological advances, certainly, and we just talked about a few of those. Uh, outside of that, let's say tactically or technique-wise, is there something that you used to teach that you no longer teach, and why did you change your mind on that, or why did you come up with a different way? Well, yes, um, that's a great question, too, because, um, again, depending on who was the instructor that influenced us is how we usually evolve and go to that. And uh, when I first started out um, teaching firearms, you could not go, it was sacrilegious to go against the doctrine of the weaver stance. Mm -hmm. um, and then it wasn't the fact that Masad Ayub tried to convince me to go to isosceles which he was a very big influence in my life uh, to do that. But the challenge as far as technology goes, Tony Blauer was out there looking at all these dash cam videos from law enforcement perspectives. And he said, hey, under stress, you're gonna extend. It's a natural uh, form of fight or flight in our uh, startle reflex. And from a scientific standpoint, and you take a look at that, uh, for 10 years, he had a $10,000 bounty of show me somebody, one person that's in a gun fight, not a target shooting, a gun fight shooting uh, in a um, weaver stance. And the interesting thing on the weaver stance, Jack Weaver, who was a deputy sheriff, did that stance particularly just specifically for competition uh, competition shooting mm -hmm. and that never gets out there right. so so i was one of those guys that used to teach uh the weaver and now totally go to isosceles because not only do i have background training 
in it, but I have real life experience that I can uh, articulate. Now, the other added to that is um, I don't, I, um, I go toe to toe with all the Delta guys all the time, but the volume of people that I teach, because in 10 years at the Hall of Fame, seven years with this drill, I teach, I don't, I do not teach people to use their sights. Uh, I use point index shooting religiously to the vast majority of people that are trying to get basic skill sets for survivability. Cause, uh, the, I've shown them over and over, they can hit a target from 30 feet out just by pointing and indexing to the center of their body and pulling the trigger and have good quality hits without even worrying about sights. So, uh, I, you know, the only time I use sights is at distance. And if it's up close, I've shot the, per the person's been shot several times and the body's not going down, then you got to do headshots. Those are aim shots. But other than that, that is my one big contention versus what other people are teaching. I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Definitely. That's, uh, you know, I want to make sure that my students have a good confidence in their ability to use just bone structure and, and point shooting, like you said, or kinesthetic alignment. Uh, unsighted fire to be able to get hits in the high center chest, but they also should have the confidence to be able to use those sites for those more precise instances. And, you know, if you have the wherewithal in your brain to say, do I need my sites or not? Well, then use your sites, but you probably don't need them, especially at the distances where the vast majority of dynamic critical happens, uh, dynamic critical incidents happen for civilians, which is in that nine to, nine to 15 foot range. Uh, you know, Tom Givens came up with a lot of that data years ago. And it's solid. It, it, it's, it's solid data. And I think uh, the, the point being is, all right, what I tell people is you got to know the history of where we came from and where we're at today. If we're talking about using front sight, rear sight, steady aim, breathe techniques, uh, squeeze the trigger, that comes from rifle marksmanship. And that rifle marksmanship assumes that you have both time and distance. Mm -hmm. Up close and personal uh, within arm's length, you don't have the time for that. So, again, going by the technology that we have in most modern guns that we're carrying today, those guns are capable of shooting a uh, quarter-inch group at 50 feet away. If we can shoot a quarter-inch group at 50 feet away, we'd be world champions. Now, you know, the only thing that I tell people that the – because it comes, the marksmanship comes into play because everybody wants to shoot these nice dots, nice groups, same round, same hole. And I tell good looking young men like yourselves, I said, the good thing that what that is good to do to be able to is chicks dig it because it does not serve any other purpose other than that. Um, but if you can hit, uh, and I like to use Larry Vickers analogy on target shooting is okay. The desire is once we go into a gunfight, we practice to shoot six inch plates um, out to uh, 30 feet, and that's standard. But in reality, it's an eight inch plate that we're shooting. So I like that mentality a lot. I was reading in a book, I forget which one it was, but at one point in time, they actually classified slide lock as a gun malfunction. Uh, were you... Really? Yeah, yeah. I guess years and years and years ago, like you never let your gun go to slide lock. And, and we've seen, especially you looking at video evidence, you know, people that are trained, untrained, 
you know, they're going to slide like you people generally don't count rounds. And in that civilian context, text, especially, you don't have the backup to be able to say, hey, Matt, cover me. I'm taking a knee to, to uh, reload my gun. Uh, what's your thoughts on teaching, say, tactical reloads or something like that to a civilian? I, I, I rarely teach that because it's hardly ever going to happen. I think uh, uh, the USCCA, I forget the gentleman's name that did the um, studies with gunfights, uh, but his data was spot on. And I used it in the article. Um, if there's, if it's mono on mono, you against somebody else, if it's a life or death uh, fight and it goes to guns, you're probably going to use every round in that gun. If there's multiple opponents, the first guy's getting at least three good rounds. And then the next guy is getting uh, a couple. And the third guy, he's probably already split the scene. But I have very rarely ever seen, um, in fact, the one documented case I have seen where a, a person went to another uh, gun was Jewel, who was the, he on the jewelry stop, uh, shop out in California. But he had multiple guns laying around his shop. And that was after the incident, first incident that he got into. So as a civilian, I find very rare where people are going to go uh, and um, do a magazine exchange. Now, if they go to slide lock and they got the wherewithal after the incident is done to go ahead and replace and charge that gun to wait in case bad guys show up, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I haven't seen anybody had to uh, go to um, – it's usually a secondary gun that they go to rather than a reload. Yeah, a lot of people carry extra magazines in case the gun has a malfunction. But, you know, as many people as we've run through the range, and, and I'm sure you would probably, I, I would guess that you would agree with this, Paul, you know, with um, a modern gun that's clean and you're using good ammo, like how often do you get malfunctions with the guns? It's, it's pretty rare, not like it once was, I'm sure. You know, so uh, having, having the ability to put another magazine, like if I got room in my belt, I'm going to carry an extra one because I just... I'd rather have more and not need it than wish I had. Exactly. But if, if you look at the data on that, you know, for someone to want to have to carry like 10 mags on them or something outrageous like that, unless they're in a law enforcement capacity where they could be in a prolonged gunfight as a, as a citizen, maybe not so much of a thing. Yeah. I think your point, your points are absolutely 100% valid. Um, when we transition from revolvers to semi-automatics, Everybody was complaining that they were jamomatics uh, because no one took into the fact that when you're practicing shooting, they were using ball ammunition. Well, at the time, those guns specifically weren't designed for wad cutters, mm -hmm. and that's where they had their problems with. But as you have stated correctly, technology has come so far into the future that it is a rare occurrence it's for anything malfunction wise it's usually a bad magazine as you guys know or somebody's not holding the gun tight enough and causing lip rinsing and causing their own malfunctions but as far as the weapons go they're to the point where no there's there's going to be no problems with them 
Yeah. yeah, if you look at a lot of people going from, say, a revolver grip, where you're actually not gripping the entire revolver with both hands, you're gripping the entire revolver with your strong hand and then mm-hmm. gripping your other hand with, the, with your support hand. And if you run a semi-automatic like that, quite often that gun's moving within the grip. So you do get yep. some of those platform failures, even though you might be behind the gun and getting good bone support behind it. When did, when did the thumbs forward grip start to become more of a prevalent thing? Again, uh, what's interesting to me is usually the competitive shooters uh, do so well that they influence the military and law enforcement communities and then it becomes the norm and that is that is an example of it and i would give credit to uh robbie latham um uh, for that specific technique Hmm. that's neat to know excellent well thank you again for your time and we'll look forward to seeing you down there in florida here in a couple months all right guys have a good one god bless you you. we've got a lot of sponsors that make this show possible Check them out and give them your business. This episode is brought to you by Taser. Simple to use, safe to own, effective when you need it. Mantis. Mantis X helps shooters suck less. Meet the Pressers is sponsored by Next Level Training, Saber Red, Cutting Edge Bullets, the USCCA, McLean Corporation, ASP, Custom Poker Chip Company, Common Sense Self-Defense, and T1 Ammunition. Meet the Pressers is also generously supported by these fine companies, ranges, and our Patreon members. Thank you. Thanks for watching the show. Make sure to subscribe, click the little bell, like, comment, follow, and share. And you can also support us on Patreon, host us to teach a course at your location, or come to our location and take a course. Until next time. Adieu. Thank you for watching Meet the Pressers. 